We are in Mark 15, so I would invite you to find Mark 15. We're going to finish this chapter today. And as I've said so many times, the theme of the Gospel of Mark. Do you all know the theme yet? Suffering. The suffering servant and what? The call and cost of being his disciple. We have spent the last two Sundays looking pretty specifically at the suffering aspect, the suffering servant, looking at his crucifixion. And as we finished last time, Jesus gave up his spirit. He died. So as we pick it up today, he is dead. We're going to look at his burial. But in this account of his burial, guess what we're going to see? The cost of being his disciple. It's not necessarily what we think of. We usually focus on the burial. But I'd like to look at those who were witnesses to his death and his burial. And especially look at Joseph. And look at the cost of Joseph being his disciple. So I'm going to read this section. I'd invite you to stand, please, with me. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. There were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid it in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Would you pray with me, please? Glory to God. We are so thankful for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for this section. You've given us details in the different Gospels. You've given us insight here into these women <clears throat> and into Joseph. And Lord, as we study this today, I pray that you would reveal more of yourself to us, that you would reveal more of ourselves to us, that in the mirror of your word this morning, we would see what you want us to see. Lord, it does no good to learn new facts about the Bible. Even though that's nice if we learn some new facts, I pray that you would show us what we need to do with this information. Father, I'm asking that you would anoint me by your Holy Spirit to minister your word this morning, that it would be clear, that it would be accurate, that I would be bold in speaking exactly what you want me to, that you would give us ears to hear this. Lord, not just taking it in, but knowing how to apply it. We, we know that ultimately your Holy Spirit is going to teach this passage this morning. And we pray that he would do it in a way that reveals what you want us to do, that you would lend encouragement where we need that, that you would grant by your grace sorrow where we need to repent, where we need to confess, where there may be sin. Father, work your will in us. Bring glory to your 
yourself to this plan in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A year after I graduated college, Rochelle and I led ministry teams for the schools that we attended. So we went out throughout first the northeast and the southeast. We visited churches and we visited schools and we were presenting dramas. And I was preaching some. And one of the scripts that we acted out was titled Dichotomy. And especially for you younger people, you may not have heard of that word before. Dichotomy means divided into two opposite parts. And the idea, spiritually, is very closely related to hypocrisy. One who wears a mask, one who acts a certain way, but there's something different going on inside. Now, the play was about a young man who couldn't decide who he really was or wanted to be. His thoughts constantly argued against him as he tried to maintain his persona around his parents at home and around his friends and teachers at school. And as I shared with you before, in some ways that describes me. When I was in junior high, early high school, I was one way around one group of friends, and then I was another way around another group of friends. And some of them wanted to do right, and so I would hang out with them, and then another day there were some who were telling dirty jokes, and I hung out with them. And maybe you can relate, because what was going on is that I was miserable. Because when you don't know who you are, and you don't know who you want to be, it's very confusing. And you don't really have any friends, because you're just a chameleon, you're blending in wherever. That's what this script was about. And that's what I could relate to. But there came a point, once in junior high, and then once early in high school, either ninth or 10th grade, where I had enough. And I was finally willing that whatever it cost me, whoever stopped being my friend, I was going to do what was right, and I didn't care anymore. And like I said, it happened twice, and it happens through our lives when we've made bad decisions or hung around with the wrong people who are tearing us down instead of building us up. Some of you may be wondering, what could it possibly cost a teenager in a Christian school to, to decide to do what's right? Well, guess what? There are people who will make fun of you. No, there's not persecution going on in any Christian school I've ever heard of, but there's a lot of mockery of those who don't want to do right, mocking those who do. And not having any friends hurts, regardless of your age. And being made fun of hurts, regardless of your age, or where you go to school. But the Lord provided some good friends along the way, and they offered some good encouragement to me. Our key phrase for this morning probably isn't what you would expect it to be, but the key phrase I'm looking at, the way I've studied this, is taking courage. We'll see it when we get to verse 43. Taking courage, that's describing Joseph. And as I was working on this sermon, I was trying to figure out a title, and I tried different adjectives. A, a secret disciple, a bold disciple, a courageous disciple, and I finally decided on a daring disciple. But my question that I'd like everyone here to ask, anyone who's joining us online, ask yourself this question. What kind of disciple are you? If you're the person being described, you would be a blank disciple. Think about that. Answer that in your own mind. And then I have two main ideas for us this morning. One is that true disciples remain true disciples. That's profound, obviously. I'll explain it in a minute. True disciples remain true disciples. We'll see that in verses 40 and 41, and then kind of at the end at verse 47. And then second point, secret disciples do not remain secret disciples. We'll see that in verses 42 to 46. 
to give ourselves a little bit of a running start, because I broke off in the middle of the session last week, I'm going to back up to verse 37 right now and read those three verses. Verse 37 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That's what we focused on last week, that he is the Son of God. But today we're picking up right there in the story. Jesus has died. He has given up his spirit, his, his ghost, is what some translations have, that he has voluntarily given his life. And the centurion has responded by confessing something profound and true, that Jesus is the Son of God. So that brings us to the new section for today, and the first point, true disciples remain true disciples. Let me explain what I mean by that. We've probably all known people who professed faith in Christ and then turned away. They walked away completely. They never came back. I don't believe that those individuals were saved. They weren't disciples. It's not that they were saved and lost their salvation. It's that they were never saved. Because true disciples, here's the theological term, they persevere. They continue. They continue to believe. We all have times where we backslide. We may be like Peter. And we may deny the Lord, but we come back. We don't change God. We don't forsake the one true God, having come to him and become his child. So true disciples remain true disciples. They persevere. Verse 40 says, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Those synoptic gospels we were talking about a good bit last week, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the ones that cover most of the same material, they all mention these women. They all say these particular women were present. Who were they? They were brave, loyal women who followed Jesus. And although they were looking on from afar, they were present. They were there. In contrast to the twelve, all of whom had scattered except for John. Now, these three had been closer than they were when Mark was writing. They had been at the foot of the cross earlier. That's what John 19 tells us. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So those are the three ladies being described there, plus his mother. These three women in particular had ministered to him in Galilee. Luke tells us there were many women who provided for him from their substance. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. When I was in college, second year of college, I traveled on a mission trip to Lithuania. It was a, a longer, short-term mission trip. We went for five and a half or six weeks to Lithuania. And some of you may think, where is that? That is in northeastern Europe. I have a map for you there. That's Lithuania. It, it's the Baltic region, if you've heard of that. Um, it's former Soviet Union. They declared their independence back in 1991. Maybe we'll have it, maybe we won't. I'm going to keep going. There were four of us on the team, and there were three young men and one woman. Two of the guys were recent college graduates, and I just finished my freshman year. And then we also had a retired lady. Her name is Lorraine Schaefer. 
she came with us, and she became sort of an adopted grandmother to all of us on this trip. And we were doing some youth things. We were providing music for services. But she did a lot of behind-the-scenes work. She, she taught the children in some of our services. She, I saw a photo when I looked at the album of her doing flannel graph stories. But a lot of what she did was make meals for us. And she even did some of our laundry. And she kept things kind of clean in the apartment we were living in. And she did all of that in service to us. And that's what I think about in relationship to the disciples here, and particularly Jesus. These women were traveling around with him when he was ministering in Galilee. And they were taking care of the material needs. They were doing the cooking. They were doing the washing. They were doing the cleaning. They were ministering to him, Luke says, out of their own substance. They were giving financially, materially, to Jesus and his disciples and meeting their practical needs, caring for them in those ways. Who are these three women? Mary Magdalene is Mary of Magdala. That's the village she was from on the Sea of Galilee. And you may be aware, Luke records in chapter 8 that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. She is formerly demon-possessed. I don't know what it's like to have one demon, let alone seven. But she had had seven demons inside her, and Jesus had freed her. All but once in the Gospels, and it's in John 19 as well, she's mentioned first in the list of women. There's only one time she's not listed first. And that has had some people thinking, okay, maybe she is sort of the lead female disciple, in a sense, in the same way Peter. Because when you read the list of disciples, who's always listed first? Simon Peter. All but one time, Mary Magdalene is listed first. So it seems like she may have been the leader among these women. Second one is Mary, the mother of James the Less, or your translation may say James the Younger, and of Joseph. She seems to be the same person in John 19 who was the wife of Clopas. And we don't know who James the Less and Joseph were. Who is she? She's the mother of those two guys and the wife of Clopas. But it also tells us probably that Mark's original audience knew her two boys. In the same way, earlier back in verse 21, we had Alexander and Rufus, Simon's sons. So whoever these people were, were familiar to Mark's first readers. And then Salome, the wife of Zebedee and the mother of James and John. Many people think she was also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So take note of these women that Mark chooses to mention by name. Two of them will be eyewitnesses to all three events, the death, the burial, and the resurrection in the book of Mark. Now this is a little bit of a review from past weeks. We talked about the trial of Jesus, those sham trials, the religious one and the civil one. How many witnesses did the religious leaders need to convict Jesus? Remember? At least two. At least two. two or three is what they were looking for. That was the number of witnesses required to confirm information. And these three women could confirm that Jesus died. That's when Mark chooses to bring up. There were these three women here who had just witnessed Jesus shouting a loud voice, It is finished, giving up his spirit. And then they would have heard what the centurion said as well, that he's the Son of God. That is our first point this morning. True disciples remain true disciples. We get to the end of this, and two of them are still there observing where he was laid. And they plan to come back and finish preparing the body. But second, and more of our main point for today, secret disciples do not remain secret disciples. What do I mean by that statement? Those who belong to Jesus will confess him before other people. Now, of course, I know there will be times 
when we miss an opportunity. There will be times when we chicken out. I know I have. But, if you're truly a follower of Christ, you will be willing to confess him before others. Verbally. And the first step some of you need to do in confessing him verbally is to be baptized. That is part of becoming a follower. That's, that's how he arranged That's how he commanded it. And in our church, at least, we give you an opportunity, if you're younger, to answer some questions in front of everybody, or if you're older, to share your salvation testimony. To confess should be really easy in here. These are friends. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. But we need to be willing to confess him. And if you are a secret disciple this morning, you will not remain a secret disciple if you are truly a disciple of Christ. Now, all the gospel accounts, all four gospels, give us information about Jesus' burial. Here's Mark's account, starting in verse 42. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, when evening had come, we talked about the first evening and second evening last week, the way they measured time. So this is between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, he was an important member of their Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin that we've talked about. But we know from Luke 23 that he disagreed with their decision to convict Jesus, to have him killed, executed. Matthew adds that this man, Joseph, was rich. And Luke describes him as a good and just man. What does Mark say about him? He is a prominent and important member of their Supreme Court. What else does Mark say about him? who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. This meant that he was waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come. He could come today, he could come tomorrow, he could come the next day. But he will come soon. Kind of describes our expectation that Jesus could come back anytime. He is waiting for the kingdom of God. So he's a disciple of Jesus, according to John 1938. He believed probably, this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, but he probably believed that Jesus was the Messiah, or could be the Messiah. But so far, he had kept those beliefs to himself. Because John also tells us that he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. What does it say about him? Here's, here's who he is. Here's, he was waiting for the kingdom of God, taking courage. There's our key phrase. He was taking courage. The idea of this phrase is that he is being courageous. He is brave. He is daring. He is summoning his courage. What does that mean? It means that something had happened inside Joseph. When? I don't know. What specifically happened inside him? I don't know. But something had happened between what John writes, that he was a disciple but secretly for fear of the Jews... And this moment, when taking courage, he's going to come to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Now, that kind of change of mind, that change of heart, we have a word for that. What is it? Repentance. He had changed his mind. He had been a disciple, but he had been a secret disciple for all that time. And maybe it was something about witnessing the way Jesus died, the way the centurion had. I don't know what it was, but something had happened to change his mind, to change his heart, to cause him to repent. When I was a little kid, I liked to read books, and I liked to listen to records. I'm so glad those have come back out so that you little kids know what I'm talking about, what a record is. 
And some of them were read-along storybooks. Anybody old enough to remember that? Okay. One of my favorite stories was Lambert the Sheepish Lion. And if you're not familiar with that story, go look it up. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. It's a Disney cartoon from the 50s. Very old. Old school Disney. And because old school Disney, the stork mistakenly delivered a lion cub to the flock of sheep. And this mama sheep, this ewe sheep, adopts Lambert. And he grows up thinking that he is a sheep. Everybody else thinks he's a sheep. Until one night, a wolf comes and attacks the flock, specifically attacks his mother. And in that moment, something snapped inside him. And all of a sudden, he lets out this giant roar and scares away the wolf. See, that's silly talk. Yes, it is. But maybe it will help you remember, something happened inside Joseph. There may be somebody in this room this morning, something that's going to happen to you right now, in this sermon. That something is going to change inside you, and you're going to realize... I'm a follower of Jesus, and I need to stop being a secret follower of Jesus. I need to let some people know. I think what happened in Joseph is that his love overcame his fear. Because clearly, as we look at this, he loved Jesus. Followers of Jesus love Jesus. And we read in 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now, as I was writing this and thinking this through, I first said, he got over his fear. He wasn't fearful anymore. I don't know if that was true. I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm still fearful. I'm doing the right thing. I'm getting ready to open my mouth and say what I'm supposed to say, and I'm still fearful inside. So I'm not sure the fear was gone, but his love for Jesus had overcome his fear of man. He was probably still afraid, but now he recognized that he feared God more than he feared man. Proverbs 29, 25, I quote it often, the fear of man brings what? A snare, a trap. Our fearfulness of people around us is a trap for us. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Do you fear the Lord more than you fear people? How important is Jesus to you? What are you willing to endure for Jesus? What are you willing to give up for him in terms of time or money or reputation? Because Joseph summoned his courage. Taking courage, he did what? He asked for the body of Jesus. Why? Jewish custom required bodies to be buried. Why then? Sunset was about to happen. Deuteronomy 21-23 said that even a criminal who was hanged must be taken down and buried before the start of a new day at sunset. Furthermore, the Sabbath began on that particular day, and no one was allowed to work or travel on Sabbath, so whatever they were going to do, they had to do quickly. John gives us some additional details. In John 19-31, therefore, because it was the preparation day, Mark told us that's the day before the Sabbath, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And as you continue reading what John wrote, that was to fulfill prophecy. That they would look on him whom they pierced and also that none of his bones would be broken. Exactly, in Psalm 22. 
why would they break their legs? That seems so strange to us. They've already executed this person in a torturous way. Why would you further torture the person? Because that's how the person is breathing. Remember, we talked about this. As you are hanging on the cross, part of what kills you is suffocation. You cannot breathe anymore. You have to lift yourself up in order to breathe. And as soon as they break the legs, you can no longer push up with your feet and legs. You have to pull yourself up with your arms, which are going to get tired much more quickly, and you're going to die. That's what that was about. Why did the Jews even care? Because the next day was a holy day. It was a Sabbath, and they didn't want those bodies, whether the two criminals were Jewish or not, they didn't want those bodies out. They wanted to follow their customs, their laws, and get the bodies buried. So they said, could we please break the legs so that we can get this done? And Jesus was already dead by that point. It says in John that they did break the leg of the other two, and they would have died much more quickly after that. Now, look at verse 44. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. We read earlier in verse 5 that Pilate marveled. This is the second time it said Pilate marveled. First, it was that Jesus silenced during that unjust hearing. But now he marveled that Jesus was dead so quickly. I told you. Crucifixions normally lasted days, not hours. So it was a surprise. You mean he's already dead? Are you sure he's already dead? He's going to make sure. How is he going to do that? He's going to summon a centurion. Only Mark tells us that a Roman centurion confirmed the death of Jesus. And make no mistake, this absolutely confirms the death of Jesus. Back when I worked in the bank, sometimes a client would pass away, and there were very detailed procedures we had to follow with the death of a client. But what started all that, we really couldn't do much of anything until we received the death certificate. This is the equivalent of a death certificate. The centurion tells Pilate he's dead. Well, how does he know? He's in charge of executions. He's probably done some of these. He knows what it looks like when a man is dead, particularly by crucifixion. And he said he's dead. What's my point? Why does it make this matter? There are some who will say Jesus wasn't dead. He swooned. He was in a coma. He was in a deep sleep. No, he was dead. Rome believed he was dead. The Bible says he was dead. That's enough. But we also have Rome telling us he was dead. He died. And these next verses record for us Jesus' funeral. Verse 46, then he bought, we're talking about Joseph, he bought fine linen, took him, that's Jesus, down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. He took him down. And if you've never thought about this, that was difficult. He wasn't an undertaker. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He likely had never removed a dead body from a cross. But he loved Jesus. He was willing to go out of his way. He was willing to go way beyond his comfort level and figure this out. How to get a body that's been nailed to a cross down. He did it. What's more, it's the time of the Passover. Going into the Sabbath day. And if he's going to touch this dead body, guess what that means? He's going to be unclean and he's not going to be able to observe the festival that was beginning, the week-long festival. But he didn't care. He loved Jesus. He, 
that love in him overcame his fear. So he bought fine linen and then wrapped Jesus in that linen. That was the Jewish custom to wrap a corpse, strips of linen cloth, and they would tuck spices in and around the body to mask the smell. According to John 19, Nicodemus helped. Remember Nicodemus, chapter 3 of John's Gospel, came to Jesus by night, and it says he purchased and bought the spices. So both men, notice this, both men had been secret disciples until Jesus was dead. So how many men witnessed and buried Jesus' body? witnesses. Where? A tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. We know from John 19 that it was near Golgotha, near where Jesus was crucified. According to Matthew, the tomb belonged to Joseph. And according to Luke and John, no one had ever been buried there before. So what, Bob? Why do these details matter? First, the bodies of crucifixion victims were not normally buried. They were either left on the cross to decay and be eaten by birds, or thrown into a common grave. If Jesus' body had been thrown into a common grave, how is anybody going to prove whether he rose from the dead? Second, this wasn't just any grave. It was a tomb hewn out of rock, and that was expensive. An expensive tomb fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Third, if no one else had ever been buried in that tomb, then there were no other bodies, there were no other bones, there were no other remains in that tomb. So there is no confusion over which tomb it was and whether, well, is that Jesus' body or is that somebody else's body? There cannot be any confusion. So fulfilling prophecy, clarifying that this is where Jesus will be buried. He had to be buried to fulfill prophecy, and he had to be buried for us to know where he was buried so that they could go and find the empty tomb. Last verse for this morning. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. When it says they observed it, they weren't just sort of, yeah, no, they were paying attention. They were looking closely. They were viewing the burial place and the process attentively. Now, please, humor me one last time. How many witnesses are required under Jewish law to prove something? Two or three, okay? And we now still have two women who could confirm where Jesus was buried. According to Luke, the other women had gone home to prepare the spices and fragrant oils. You can see that in Luke 23. Mark wasn't there, but we have these witnesses who were. I wasn't there, you weren't there. But Jesus was dead. Jesus was buried. Next time we're going to see that Jesus rose again. That would be the gospel. That he died, that he was buried, that he rose again. And Mark has it all right here for us. So that was the funeral of Jesus. Not much of a funeral, was it? They probably talked while they worked, but I don't think anybody got up and spoke. There wasn't a obituary, nothing like what we think of for a funeral. But Danny Aiken, in his commentary, correctly observed that the only people at Jesus' grave were two Pharisees and two women. They're all disciples. The true disciples remain true disciples. Two of them 
secret disciples. But secret disciples don't remain secret disciples. And that leads me back to my question. What kind of disciple are you? So the first question we have to ask is, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you ever cried out to him to save you from sin? He is God, he is the Son of God, he is the Savior from sin. And when we believe on him, we become his child. We have eternal life beginning from that moment of belief. You can do that today if you've never done that before. You can do that. I'm looking in the faces, most of you, I know your testimony. I know you're a believer. Who knows that? Does your family know that? Do your friends, your classmates, your coworkers, people around you know that you're a follower of Jesus? Are you still a secret disciple? Or has your love for him, your commitment to him, overcome your fear of people? So bow your heads and close your eyes. First I'll ask, is there anyone here this morning you don't know whether you're a follower of Jesus? You've never come to him for salvation and you're concerned about that in your heart this morning. If that describes you, would you look up at me, make eye contact with me and then look back down? Okay. Follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit working on you this morning. Maybe you've only ever been a secret disciple. It's time. Confess him before others. Maybe you have, but not in one particular relationship you're thinking of. I'm not trying to guilt anybody in anything. I'm not even aware of what the Holy Spirit may be telling you, but if he's telling you something, would you please respond? And if there's anyone you say, yeah, but I'm, I know what I need to do in response to this passage this morning. The Holy Spirit has shown me that, and I'm praying for the courage to do it. If that describes you, would you put your hand up, and I will know you in prayer. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to guess anyone else. shown them something in their lives that needs to change today. Would you please, Lord, that they only you can, that your grace would change each individual. And Lord, for the one who does not know for sure that they must be the day of salvation, would you grant understanding, would you grant repentance and faith 
makes you thankful for your word, for this section of your word, for the example that you are, for even the example that Joseph and his women and Nicodemus are to us. May we follow in their footsteps and we don't 